0: Are you frustrated with your government contracting journey? Do you feel like there's just something missing in your business, but you just can't put your finger on it? Are you finding enough opportunities? Are you struggling to win the few opportunities you do find? Do you have a plan of attack or a strategy for this market? Would you like somebody to review your current approach? Maybe it's time to consider getting a coach. Our team of coaches have helped our clients win over $13.6 billion in government contracts. We've figured out how to help companies just like you accelerate in this market. If you want to find out if coaching is for you, go to federal-access.com forward slash coaching today and fill out a coaching application. I will personally respond to your application and schedule a time for us to talk about your business. There's no cost for the session. There's no obligation. There's no hard sell or anything like that. What I will guarantee you is I will review your top challenges and give you detailed advice. And if coaching makes sense for you, I'll walk through your options. Visit federal-access.com forward slash govconcoaching today. Coaching today to get started. Now, let's get into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now, your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey everyone, Mike Lejeune here with Game Changers, and we have a great episode lined up for you today. I have got Aaron Andrew, the managing director of government contract lending over at Live Oak Bank with us and aaron has been on for a couple of episodes. So welcome back, Aaron. We're excited to have you on. For those people who have not heard of you before, why don't you take a minute, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do over there.
1: No, thank you so much, Michael. And um, as always, love the opportunity um, to be on these and I think it's great what you're doing for this whole community. But um, just as a little bit of background, um, I've been with Live Oak Bank for a few years now. Um, started out working on the finance side, and recently we've launched an M&A advisory division. So, helping to run that, um, the bank itself, um, you know, we're a publicly traded or a publicly traded bank, FDIC regulated. Um, we're the number one SBA lender in the country, and we really focus on different industries. So, we have a whole team of GovCon experts, and so we do everything from GovCon um, financing GovCon businesses to helping them with entering the market, exiting the market, that kind of thing. And previously, I've you know worked in the government, was at SBA for about seven years, and a wh- ways back, about 15 years ago, was also at Booz Allen Hamilton doing IT consulting. So I've been in kind of local and state government as well and kind of been in that GovCon space um, for a while. So this was a really great opportunity when I came over to the bank because I think financing you know, planning, M&A, those types of things were some of the bigger challenges I saw when I worked with small businesses at the SBA. So have been very lucky um, to be able to kind of continue that mission in this role at Live Oak Bank.
0: Awesome. Well, you know, if you're a brand new listener here, I want you to know a couple of things. Number one, we don't endorse a lot of folks. And so to to have Erin on here says a lot about her and the bank. So we really appreciate What you are doing over there, Aaron, and what Live Oak Bank is doing, and we think a lot of you. And so if you're listening and you need a bank or you're in government contracting, we want you to reach out to Aaron. And the second thing I always tell people is if you need somebody in this industry, you you need a specialist. You need somebody who has the experience like Aaron and like the bank does because, you know, U.S. Bank or Bank of America or whatever, that's great for your checking account probably not the best solution for your government contracting needs. You know, it's just it's just different. You know, the same thing like if if you need a doctor and you know you just have a cough, yeah, go to your regular doctor. But if you're gonna have brain surgery, you're not gonna go to that person. You know, you're gonna go to a specialist. It's the same thing here because it's just so specialized. There's so many ins and outs. We always recommend a specialist for this. And so that's why, you know, Aaron has been kind of our resident banking expert on the podcast for a long time now and so we appreciate what she's doing over there and we highly highly recommend you know you always seek out an expert on there and so it, that's just one of the things whether you're new to the podcast or you've heard a few but you haven't heard of uh, me kind of give that spiel before that's very very important to have a special in this because you can make a lot of mistakes if you have the wrong person on the team for this you know keep your checking account with us bank or whatever but, but bring a specialist in so you know, that that's my little caveat there for everybody <laughs> listening there. Cause it's just, it's so important, you know, that they understand that. Yeah. So, you know, today we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic and you know, it's, it's funny to me how every time I talk to a new entrepreneur, one of the first things they tell me before they've really even gotten out of the gate is I'm trying to get this staged for an acquisition someday. And I'm like, you, you don't even have any clients yet what do you you know so to be talking today you know about planning for an exit you know companies that are looking to sell or figure out a way to exit the business in five years I, I think it's a, a really great topic you know you talked about the m a team uh, over with the bank now so I think it's a really great topic whether they are looking to just sell and get out or or, you know, if there's some other strategy. So I want to let you kick this off for us because I know we were talking earlier and you talked about the five P's of this. And I want to let you kind of kick this off and frame this and then we'll kind of take questions and kind of go from there.
1: No, absolutely. Thank you so much, Michael. And, of course, with everything, there are five P's for anything, right? So I had to come up with the five P's for planning for an exit. Um, and I think the first one is pretty You know direct it's planning for it um you know making sure you plan for that exit second one is professionals to your point early earlier making sure you have that specialist or that group of specialists that really understands govcon and they understand M&A. Um, the third is pricing, and obviously this is probably the most sensitive and one of the most sensitive for anyone who's exiting because you want to get the best price that you can um, for all the work you've put into your business. Number four is people, your employees, and that is very you know that's a very sensitive topic. Um, for many folks, and they want to know what's going to happen to their team because that team has helped them build the business. And then finally five is just preparing for a marathon, not a sprint, because I I think you could talk to a lot of M&A advisors. You could talk to a lot of small businesses who have gone through this It definitely um, can take time, and you have to have patience with that process. So it is definitely more of a marathon versus a sprint, which brings you back to the planning for it, why Mm. it's so critical to start planning earlier rather than later. Um, and I think, to your point, you, you know, you've talked to a lot of folks who said, you know, I'm going to start this business and I want to eventually sell it. That's, that's sort of the goal. And I I, have to, I can't say this enough to folks. And even when I was at SBA um, working with businesses across the spectrum, not just in GovCon, um, the biggest mistake that, that businesses make is, is not planning for an exit. It's, you're so in the day-to-day that that end goal of where you want to go um, it's just you kind of can lose sight of that. So what I tell folks is you should know where you want to be, obviously, in the next year. And you're planning for that. You're having your strategic meetings. But where is the next five years? Where is the next 10? Where is the next 20? And along that continuum, wh- where would you logically want to exit? And I get the response from some people, well, I love what I do. I'm never going to exit. And unfortunately, sometimes an exit isn't by choice. Sometimes mm. there are health issues that come up. Sometimes there are challenges in your own personal life and you have to exit. And so it's better to be prepared and to have a plan in place, even if you never really want to execute it. Right. But mm. it, it is important to do that. And I think on the planning side of things, um, two things I kind of want to cover. Um, number one is the best time to exit. When is the best time to sell your company? And number two Um, how to plan. And I always recommend every single company, and some companies do this, some small businesses do a great job of this. Annually, you should have an internal valuation process, just as a part of your annual annual planning process. How much is your company worth today? Um, And let's talk through what are the value drivers and what can we do over the next year to increase that value to get to our end goal of you know, a five-year or a 10-year or a certain dollar amount where we want to exit. So I think that's really important is putting those planning mechanisms in place. And then number two – When is that best time to sell? And in the GovCon space, the best time to sell is when you've just won contracts or a new new vehicle um, because you're going to be, you know, that value of that company and that purchase price is going to be dependent on that backlog you have and how many option years you have. So if you have one year left on contracts and even if you have a great revenue number, you know, the worth with the company is really set on the assets, which are those contracts. So it's it's going to go for a much lower price than it would had you sold it, you know, four years earlier probably, depending on kind of the, the situation and the environment. Um, and then number two, another thing to think about when the best time to sell is when you have a good group, um, a larger um, audience of potential buyers, because more buyers will drive up valuation and price. And so when you think about it, um, if you're in a NAICS code, for example, like if you're in the, I see a lot of folks in the 541611 NAICS code that has a $15 million max, and they end up wanting to sell when they're at $14 million, right? Um, and the challenge is who could buy them because the combined revenues of a transaction are what determine sort of the size. And so it's, if they were to still maintain those small contracts, if someone were to buy them that was, you know, over 500,000 or a million dollars it would be really challenging. So the the audience of folks that could potentially finance a transaction like that and actually buy them would be kind of small. Whereas if they had moved into work and the 541 511 or 519 makes with the 27.5 million max and they had 15 million in revenues um, that would allow, you know, a $10 million company to buy them or a $5 million. It just, it expands the audience. And I say this too because I think your price gets higher when you have more potential um, buyers. So mm. obviously full and open contracts are that way or just small business set-asides or, you know, and so it's important to think about how do you increase that pool of buyers um, over time. And, 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 and when you have that larger group of buyers, that's also a good time to, to, to sell your company.
0: No, that's that's some really good points there. And I I like how one of the things you touched on there, and and I want to kind of go back to it for just a moment before before I let you kind of hit the others, is, you know, what's your value? Kind of doing that internal valuation. And I think that's a great time to have someone like yourself sit in there and bring some reality to the situation because when I first got into business, they would sit down and go, oh, you know, we were in a tech company and it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's 15, it's 17 times our revenue and all the, you know, all these crazy numbers and tech companies can have some high valuations, some high multipliers. But, you know, when you start to peel it back, you're like, no, that's not even remotely close, you know, and, and I often talk to people and say, well, how much of this is recurring revenue versus one time versus like you were talking about, you know, with option years and different things like that. And in that particular business, everything was a one-year license. There were no option years. There were nothing like that. And I'm like, yeah. so like we're really as good as our last sale, and that's it. And and even that is going to be really, really touchy. And there's just there's so many of these companies that are like, well, we're doing $15 million in revenue. And I'm like, but talk to me about how much profit you're making. How much profit are yeah. you actually making? You know, if, if I came in as the owner, the sole owner to buy this, how much am I going to get out of this business? And if you tell me... Well, you know, between the, you know, everybody on the, you know, maybe $200,000. Okay. You're not selling this thing for $15 million. It's just not going to fly, you know, un- unless it's a bigger company and there's other reasons. I mean, it's very complicated. You never say never. Right. But the, I, yeah. I see too many times where the CEOs or, you know, the executive team think they've got a company that's worth 15, 20, $30 million. Dollars, and I'm like, yeah, it'd be really hard to squeeze a million out of this given the you know the ratio of your contracts and what you have going on here um and you know when they do the due diligence you talked about i don't want to kind of to leap ahead but you talked about the marathon you know we've seen companies take you know a year and a half two three years to complete an acquisition i know that's a long time but they're if they're doing their due diligence and they're not in a rush and you know that's your you know you're trying to get this done You know, it could take a year or so, and they're going to ask questions. They're going to dig deep. And, you know, I just had a client the other day. He had an email from their largest customer in one month, less than 30 days later. And and that email was like, hey, we're excited about moving forward and the work we're going to be doing next year. Because it was, they're only going into like their third option of like a five-year gig and less than thirty days later, he gets a cold email from the prime that says, "We were just notified they're not renewing." You know. Oh and, wow! And that yep. happened. With, that happened within yeah. a thirty-day window. So if you're in an acquisition yep. and that's your yep. largest contract, it and that happened. happens, guess what? It happened. Your valuation just plunged. So just being able to sit down and, and say to your team look, you know, the, these are our risks, right? During, during looking at this, even trying to evaluate how much we're worth, you know, this contract is a risk, this one's a risk, you know, what if all of those fell out, what would we still be worth, you know, at the end of the day, you know, and and even in services based business, I have a lot of people, uh, I've been in the coaching space for so many years, where, you know, the primary owner is doing most of that business, they're doing that consulting work. A lot of times they can get up to a, you know, a a seven figure business, but it's not worth that because guess what happens if if you buy that and the owner leaves, there's no more business, right? The owner is the business. The owner is the business. So it's, it's such a complicated thing that I wanted to hit on that a little bit more. And maybe you have some more advice on trying to build the best valuation or the strongest stable valuation, you know, from a banker's perspective.
1: No, absolutely, and so I'm going to skip to the pricing P because that 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 is probably the most popular and the one that folks that are listening to this are the most interested in because that is definitely the number one question I ask. You know, I get from folks, "What am I worth?" Because that will also determine, "Are you ready to exit now, or do you need to wait three more years or another year to win more right. contracts?" Like, so I think that is probably. Um, what really drives, um, you know, when folks are having, you know, in control of the decision to exit, that oftentimes is what is driving that decision. So, you know, at Live Oak, we don't do. Valuations we can do we do free purchase price estimates. So if there's a company that's interested in figuring out how much debt could be supported, because oftentimes in the small business space, um, if a small business is buying another small business because they're small business set asides and that's usually the only buyer if you have small business set asides is another small business, um you know, you want to know roughly they're going to be borrowing money to buy the business because a lot of small businesses don't have millions of dollars lying around to do, you know, fully financed, you know, transactions. So we kind of can look at on a banking side, and have our team determine how much debt could be supported, what would a bank or our bank be comfortable with on a transaction. Um, But on that purchase price, but what I think what you often see on valuations in the GovCon space, it's very different. And it is an educational um, kind of process for a lot of sellers, because all of the data that is publicly available, all the data that's available is publicly available data for for M&A transactions. So they're publicly traded companies, right? So, Think about it. Large companies that are buying other companies, the multiples are huge because the folks that are buying, they have a lot of money to buy a company. Mm-hmm. They're not having to finance it through a bank all of the time. I mean, they, yep. they're doing some of it. So those multiples are much higher. And, and there's a view on, to your point earlier in the tech space, it's much more of a top line growth versus what the bottom line, what your profit is. And in GovCon, it's completely different, especially in the small business space the value is determined by your EBITDA number. So earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Essentially, you know, I often say just think about your profit to your point earlier. What is that? And it's usually a multiple of that number. Um, and, it, and I can talk a little bit about what we've seen by way of multipliers. But what I tell folks, you could have a 50 million you – know, you could be an employee-based NAICS. You could have a 50 or $100 million business, which is wonderful – but your margins could be teeny, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to be, you know, you're going to find a price that's going to be based more on those margins and multiple of those margins versus those revenues. So it's important. We see some folks who are really interested in growing, they're, they're very obsessed with growing a revenue number. And that can be hard for two reasons. Number one, it could... Um, you know, and you know, cre- folks would have to kind of get out of the way who couldn't normally buy the company. Like they'd be too big, like for a, another small business to buy because you would be other than small pretty quickly right after that transaction. But number two, um, your your margins are so small that that price is going to be a lot lower than you anticipate, and so you really want to look at when you're looking at exiting, how am I increasing my margins? If I get into kind of one of those higher NAICS codes, am I going to get higher margin work? Um, do I want to be in an agency where they tend to have, you know, in the Intel space, sometimes it's higher margin work because the requirements and the ability to get in is much more difficult. So those are important things to think about. Um, how do you increase your margins? Because that really is going to have an impact on the purchase price of your company when you exit. Um, and I can I can kind of go through what we've seen in, in the marketplace by way of multiples. So you take that EBITDA number that I mentioned and you look at a certain multiple, um, and usually, that multiple times rebut a number is roughly what purchase price could be. And I'm oversimplifying this, and clearly, there are valuation experts out there. Um, we can kind of take a quick look at a company and give you an idea. Um, if you want an in-depth look, I you know, encourage you to hire um, an expert value, you know, valuation company as well. Um, but usually what we see in the small business space is anywhere from like two to six times EBITDA, mm-hmm. um, usually two to four times multiple on small businesses with set-aside work, um, 8A companies are much harder to transact. Um, if you're an 8A company, um, it's hard to sell because there's a waiver request requirement. So it's just a little bit more, you know, it's a little bit more difficult to sell. So that multiple's is lower. Um, you know, maybe you don't have a lot of cleared work or you have one or two capabilities or it's a lot of subcontracting work. The other thing I tell folks on valuation is you're going to get higher value um if you have prime work, mm. um, and and this is and I'm talking a lot in the services and somewhat to the product side. If you have a tech play, like you have, you know, a technology and you're looking to sell to a well-known tech firm, you know, this, it's kind of a different game. This is sort of the commodity of, you know, the commodities of you know small business government contracting firms, you know, that generally do business day in and day out. There's no kind of critical technology. That kind of thing. I mean, there are, you know, there there are exceptions to this rule, but this is sort of general at large what we see based on, you know, especially services-based companies. Um, and then, so that's two to four, usually four to six times multiples. Um, when it's two um, plus capabilities, cleared work, almost all prime, um, best in class vehicles are very hot right now, Um, strong pipeline, five years left on contracts. They've just won their contracts. Higher margins and NAICS codes with higher small business max. You know, employee-based NAICS codes, 38.5 million that, you know, just NAICS codes where a lot of folks could buy um, with, you know, higher small business limits. And then, you get into higher multiples, like much higher multiples, when you get into full and open work. And the reason is, it, a lot of folks can buy them. You could have a private equity mm-hmm. firm come in. You could have a large prime who has cash. Um, the challenge with that two to four, you know, two to six times multiple for small businesses, like I mentioned before, the reason that the multiples seem a lot lower is just because someone is going to have to borrow money to buy and. Yep the debt service coverage ratio needs to be, you know, needs to meet the bank requirements for that to happen. And that's why it's a little bit more limited.
0: Yeah. And no, I think that's great advice. And you just rattled off like 15, 20 things that (laughs) if, if I'm a small business owner and I'm trying to plan this, those are literally checklist items for me, you know, looking at Possibly transitioning to a different NAICS code and getting the revenue to to certain ratios there with my margin and all of those things. I mean, you rattled off a whole bunch of those that to me is part of the roadmap. Like if if I want to sell and I want to get millions for my company, I need to. That's the roadmap I need to follow. If I want to sell and look, I just want enough to be able to live a couple of years and figure out my next you know my next play in life. Then, you know, maybe you still sell as a small business. I think there's different routes, but I think trying to figure yeah. out what route you want to go will determine, do I need to get into the bigger NAICS codes and get into the full and open work, get into some of these other contract vehicles like you were talking about, or do I just capture enough that we've got a steady pipeline, we can stay small, somebody can borrow money, and I can get my two to six multiplier. You know, it, it's really a decision based on the owner or owner's, what route you want to go and what's important to you, which as you spoke earlier about that's your plan, you know, what, what is your plan Absolutely. and trying to figure out which route do you want to go? Cause those are two very different things I, I have a friend of mine who, um, he actually did a, a podcast with us a while back on SBIRs and he got into government contracting, not really knowing what they were going to do. And they kept winning SBIRs and he woke up one day and he was selling the company for $20 million. And and it was like, oh my gosh, how did, how did this happen? And then, you know, and now guess what? He, he, he bought a restaurant and did some cool things. And next thing you know, he's, I'm like, Hey, he's like, I'm back in government contracting. And Hey, next thing I know, I'm like, Hey, I just bought the company I'm working for. And we're, winning these again and we're trying to build it back up so we can, you know, go through this process again and sell for way more than we did last time. Well, and
1: that's, I think that's you know? a great point, Michael, because I think a lot of folks think, I want to take this one company and I want to get to 50 million and, and, and it, it it can be kind of a couple of different um, swings, right? Like you could have a company you sell for $10 million, right? You take that cash, you reinvest, invest, you buy, and then you grow more. I mean, and so I think mm-hmm. a lot of people, it, it can be a transition. Some people are selling because it's high, they want to retire. Like they have right. a spouse or they have a partner who – you know, it's just they're, they're ready to retire and they need to sell their company. For some folks, it's just they're serial entrepreneurs and they like to build things and then they like to exit. Um, and I think each with each exit, you can get bigger and bigger, right? And you right. have more cash to reinvest. And so that's another thing to think about. And a lot of folks think, I think the biggest thing, it, it can be very emotional when you exit because hmm. you've built this company. Um, And so what do you want to do afterwards? And for some folks, there's still, you know, people might not want to do the day in, day out of managing folks and doing, you know, they're tired, done it for 20 years and it's exhausting, but they still love the art of building a business. They still love the GovCon space. So they might sell and actually be an investor and, you know, someone who's going to buy. They might take a 10% stake in a company, you know, and be on the board of directors or still play a role in building a company, but not with all of the responsibility and stress they had before so I think there are a lot of options and it's important to you know think through what those look like for you and you know for each person individually because it's different for everyone
0: no that I I think that's perfect and I think if you're listening to this you know what we've found is most of the Game Changers listeners are people that are you know they're they're not only success driven they you know they want to accomplish things you know they're, they're just they're very driven people and if you're listening to this, you're probably one of those folks. And if, if this is your first company or your third company, it's probably not your last company. You know, there, yeah. there, there's probably more in you. And so I, I, I really think you touched on something that may be one of the most important pieces of the conversations uh, of what do you do after? What are you yes. going to do after? You, you know, or, are you are you just going to sit on a beach somewhere because that requires a certain amount of money? to be able to just sit on a beach for the rest of your life. And if you're going to take six months or a year off and then figure out your next gig, you know, that takes a certain amount of money. Um, You know, if you want to travel versus if you want to, you know, buy a ranch in Wyoming and fish every day. I mean, those things take different amounts of money and they just, they require different strategies. So being able to sit back and figure that out to me, I, the one piece of advice I would give somebody who's listening to this today is just because you think you want to go sit on the bench for the rest of your life doesn't mean you will and yeah. b- be thinking about you you might get bored. Yeah, you know, I I've, I've told my wife <laughs> I I will probably work till the day I die, not because I, you know, need to work, but because I just love it. I I love doing stuff like this. And, you know, to me, this is not work, you know, traveling around, speaking, helping other people. It's it's a different type of lifestyle. And we'll we'll probably do it forever in one capacity or another. Uh, But we were able to reinvent ourselves based on the market we want to be in. And, you know, when you're kind of in this government space, you know that may not be where you go next time when you transition you may transition into the commercial market or into something totally different who knows
1: absolutely but
0: but having a plan of i i'm probably going to do something i need enough money to do that or i need a plan with the money to reinvest or whatever it may be yeah. so you know
1: and i think I, oh go ahead go ahead n- no go ahead no, I think to your point exactly, like and I and this actually brings me to my third P which is professionals. Not that I'm trying to stick to my P's, but no, you're fine. you are you having a wealth advisor, so I, so finding you know, resources, finding professionals that know you, know the GovCon space and know what's best um, and I think number one, as you're contemplating this, and even uh, way before you're contemplating this, is having a wealth advisor who understands the space and understands the implications, the tax implications, and or, you know, talking to the best accountant possible out there in the, in the tax space who knows GovCon, so you understand the tax implications, and you know how much you need to walk away with, you know, away with, because that's going to help, you're going to know, can I get my purchase price even close to this, and if you're not, I need to wait a little longer, so, I think finding professionals, and a wealth advisor is one of them, an accountant is another. Finding an attorney that has done GovCon M&A transactions, to your point earlier, having a specialist on the banking side, it's just as important on the legal side too, especially for these types of things because they take a long time and you really want folks who know it. And then finding an M&A advisor who knows mm-hmm. GovCon. I think sometimes people sign up quickly with an M&A advisor who might not know that you can't sell to certain folks because you have have these set aside contracts and they don't even know what the set aside contracts are. So having experts that are specialists and professionals that are specialists um, and really understand the space is important. And I think just back to your point, if you want to sit on a beach, I mean, maybe your wealth advisor says, I mean, you might not want to. And I think I'm, I'm like you where I'm, I would get bored pretty quickly, but like, can you financially even afford to do that at the price right. you're exiting at, you know?
0: Right. And and I, I'll say this one more thing about professionals. It, I have been in meetings where somebody didn't have the right professional in the room with them, said the wrong thing, and the other team had the right professional, and they lost yep. half the value of their company. Yep. hundred percent. It, yep. It, it's just one of those things because those people are asking the right questions, and you say the wrong thing. It may not even be the wrong thing, but it was said or positioned the wrong way, and then that yes. advisor goes, oh, no. We're not, we're going to have to go, but we're going to have to talk about this. And you're like, oh my goodness. And, and we were able to go back and say, this was the moment you lost half of your company was this, this moment, because you were not prepared for that question. And instead of saying, you know, whispering to your advisor and getting the right answer, you just gave one off the cuff and you lost and you lost big time. And I think, you know, even being able to talk to an advisor, you know, like you said, an M&A expert, whatever, and say, is this normal? Because, you know, certain, yeah. it's not like everybody goes through this 17 times, you know, in, in their life. You know, you may only go through this once in your life. And so you may think, well, is it, is it normal that it's taken a month to move the ball this far or two months or whatever? Is it normal that they're asking these questions, you know, and instead of getting offended or whatever it may be? You know, you can you can ask those questions. Is this normal? How wh- how should we respond to this? Again, your responses to questions often determine whether you're going to increase or lose value, and and that's that's a big factor. So I, I think that's a hundred percent agree. Very important to have those experts in there just for that purpose alone. Now the. It, we're, we're sort to run out of time here, but I cannot get out of here without talking about the employee side of things. Talk yes. to me a little bit about that. Cause to me, you know, the employees are such a big deal. I want to hear your thoughts on, on the people side of things.
1: No, I, I think this is, and this is, especially in the, the services businesses, your employees are what you're, you know, that, that is your business, right? Like, your, your ability to deliver on certain contracts, it really depends on the people. And so I think two things about this. Number one, I, I, when you go into, the, you know, looking at exiting, this is so sensitive, and it's incredibly confidential. So, you know, we talk to clients, and we sit down, and, you know, we ask, like, do you want to use your same email address? Do you, who in your company, or if anyone, do you even want to be engaged in this, you know, conversation? Because it is, you know it is so confidential and you have to be so careful with how you you know present it to your employees because you don't want folks jumping ship before the transaction happens or you probably will lose value in your company um, and so I think it's number one, figuring out the best way to engage your employees as a part of the process, and it sometimes it's after the transaction happens. Oftentimes, though, a buyer is gonna going to want to know who the critical personnel are, right? Like who's winning the contracts? Who do I need that's not going to be duplicate? Like, And so you're going to have to have an honest conversation and really think through your employees and who's going to be an asset to a buyer who's buying, and and also sometimes make recommendations to a potential buyer. You might be able to keep this person, or you might want to make like a a 1% or 2% equity um, offer to this particular employee because you're going to need them, and they're going to need to stay on afterwards. And in order to do that, they're going to have to see an upside. So I think that kind of conversation, number one, figuring out how to notify employees, how to engage them in the process, and then really identifying your your critical um, employees that will, you know, make or break the transaction and how to kind of work with the buyer in, in terms of making recommendations of folks that probably, you know, should – um, stay on after that transaction. And oftentimes, and I don't want to go, I know we're running out of time, but, you know, there's seller notes or earnout structures. So there is, you know, an implication to the seller. It's not like they're just walking away day one. They want to see the company continue to succeed. And so thinking strategically um, about your employee base and, and, and what that looks like after a transition is pretty critical as well.
0: Yeah, you know, when um, when I first got into government contracting, the company I joined was GTE. And a lot of people would be like, oh, that's the phone company. Oh, they did a lot of stuff back then. Uh, they did a whole lot of stuff. But the interesting thing was when I joined, yes, we were GTE, but within six months of me joining, we were General Dynamics. General Dynamics, uh-huh. uh, they had yep. GTE broke up, sold a whole bunch of companies. Uh, some went to Motorola and Verizon and other places. And so our division was uh, General Dynamics. Well, when we were bought by General Dynamics, my little shop, if you will, of about 35 employees, they put us on the market like the next Monday. And it it was the most frightening thing ever, because here we are in a billion dollar company and we're on the market for a a much smaller amount. But what they did when they put us on the market is they took every single one of us managers separately in a room and said, here, here's your first check. And here you're going to get another one of these. Uh, you know, over the course of the next year, as long as you stay through the uh, the actual acquisition, yep. you know, so you're going to get yep. paid to stay on through an acquisition, um, mm-hmm. you know, and complete it, you know, and, and stay three months into it or something like that. But here's the interesting thing they did when they sold. And, and if you're an owner listening to this, this is something you can do for your people. When they negotiated the deal, they had their cash buyout of whatever however many million dollars that it was. They negotiated separately for every single in the employ, or every single employee, um, a cash payout as well. And so the the new owners mm-hmm. took every single one of us in a room privately, and said, "Here's your first check, and if you stay on for a year, here's what you're going to get, like every three months for staying on, so that we can keep all of the oh, key wow. people. And and even if you were the That's lowest great. person on the team, you still got yep. something. And so, you know, it was one of those things they did to make sure, you know, people stayed through the transition, and people uh, after they transitioned, the company, the the new company, kept us on. And so, just just some ideas there because there's some really good things you can do for your people instead of you know just the owners walking away with uh, you know some really nice checks. The employees can really benefit from that because we weren't an employee owned company or anything like that. So there there's some opportunities there to really help your people out. Because to me that is what they're buying for the most part. Yep. You, absolutely you know, and it,
1: I think that's a that's great point thing. and great yeah. example. Yeah, so so that, that
0: that happened to us and and so that that was uh I mean it wasn't earth-shattering money for me as an employee but it and again it was, you know? It was it was like uh I think it was 25 30% of my salary. You know? Oh, so, that's, yeah. yeah. And that's I'm, an
1: incentive, right? That there is not probably I mean it's so much more you know it's worth it to get them so much more to have you stay on that that yeah. little, you know, that little bit is just so much, well, you know, um, such a good gesture that it kind of, it, it, it elicits just a commitment and, and some loyalty from you, which which goes a long, long way for, for the buyer.
0: Yeah, and, you know, the the other part of that story is folks like myself stayed on with that company for four more years, and most of us who were... I would consider us lower level management or more supervisors all became senior leaders in the company. I wound up the acting CEO of that company. And oh, so, wow. it, yeah, yeah it, was, it was a very interesting transition. So, you know, all of those people that had been incentivized to stick around. I mean, within a year, I was the director of sales for that company. And then six months later, I was the acting CEO of it. So it's it just one of those things where, you know, they kept the right people around and we all benefited greatly from, from that. So, and the company benefited greatly. I mean, the company, uh, was multi millions higher by the time I left. So, uh, and it was cause we all, we had the right people. So, you know, I said, that was one of the last questions I was going to ask, but you know, here's what I want to do as we wrap up here and get your final thoughts. Something we didn't touch on a whole lot was preparing for this marathon. So maybe you can kind of combine those two for me. Any final thoughts you have with, preparing for the marathon, because it is a marathon. So yeah, over to to you to close it up for us.
1: Yeah, no, I think it is. Yep, it is a marathon. So you need to prepare for the marathon So set expectations ahead of time. Um, Know that the transaction could take, you know, 10 months, it could take a year, it could take a year and a half. I, I, in our, our on the banking side, our, on the banking side um, I know our banking team always gets frustrated because they're like, no, we can do this in three months easily. The thing that takes the longest is finding the right buyer, right, culturally – the right, you know, one that's able to, you know, provide the best price. So that takes the longest time is finding that right buyer. And sometimes the buyer you start out with might, might, might not be the buyer you end up with. Because I think, I don't remember the stat, but I think it's, you know, 50% or less than 50% of transactions, you know, end up going through. Because, you know, due diligence, you find things out. Um, you might make a different, you know, a decision that, you know, a change of decision, you might Um, not be happy with the price after they find out about certain things. And so you just – you have to prepare yourself. Know that is, like, not abnormal. It's not necessarily you, but just prepare that that is going to be part of the process. I mean, I will say one caveat there is I think transactions um, that sometimes take – too long. Sometimes there are things you can't control, but something that a seller can control is being realistic about a purchase price going in. Um, Where I see transactions taking a super long time, it's like a a house that was overpriced and put on the market and then sits Mm. on the market for forever and no one buys it because they wonder why no one's bought it yet, right? Mm. And oftentimes it's because it's overpriced. So I do think when you prepare for the marathon, know that there are things out of your control, but there are also things within your control. So doing your homework up front, being realistic up front, educating yourself on multiples, on finding the right professionals, those types of things will ensure, you know, a more efficient process over the, you know, during, during the whole thing. Um, but it is going to be a marathon. But try to control the things you can control and know that the things you can't control, you just got to have the endurance to get through it.
0: Yeah. No, really good advice and really great episode overall. I, I, I love the the discussion today. I think you and I could probably talk for hours about all of this stuff. There's, there's so much good stuff to talk about here. And, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it's all really good stuff. It, again, whether you are brand new in government contracting, you've been in it for several years, you know, just take some of this stuff to heart. And if you have questions, reach out to either one of us all of our contact information is on the website with this episode, so you can reach out to us if you've got any questions. But And I urge you to ask questions. Don't just sit there and say, oh, I wish I couldn't. You know, I wish I could reach out oh, to yeah. them, but I don't want to. You know, we're going to respond to you. Out. Yeah, we're going to yep. respond to you right away. It's what we do. This is part of our, our livelihood to reach out and respond and, and help you through this stuff. It, to me, this is a really sensitive subject. Like you said, right at the start, this can be very, very personal. And, you know, you need somebody who's going to walk you through the process. And, and that's what Aaron and her team are there for. So thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. I think it was just a great episode packed with Really good information for everyone.
1: No, thank you so much, Michael. And, and like I said, I think we're so lucky to have you doing what you're doing because it's hard to find information and the right resources. And just being able to provide that and have folks, you know, being able to access it easily, I think, is wonderful and just makes us all better in the whole ecosystem. So thank you.
0: Oh, well, thank you for the kind words. We really appreciate it. You know, there's a lot of bad information out there. And so that's one of the things we're trying to put really good information out in everybody's hands because, you know, I I said this earlier, we don't want to crush anybody's dreams, but we want to set the right expectations. Because if you have the right expectations, you can plan properly. And that's so important. You touched on that several times through this podcast today. It's so important to be able to plan this properly. And having the correct information will help you do that. And that's, you know, kind of at the heart of what Game Changers has been about from the beginning. So we really appreciate that. We appreciate you as always. And we look forward to having you on again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank
0: you. Before we take off today, I want to ask everyone a simple question. Are you feeling stuck in your government business? Do you feel like you should be winning a lot more contracts, but just can't figure out how to bust through to the next level? Do you want to accelerate your results and hit your goals faster? Does that describe you at all? If so, I have a very special offer for all of our listeners today. Visit us at rsmfederal.com. Slash breakthrough coaching where you can schedule your very own business breakthrough session with me you're going to walk away from the session with three things a copy of the award-winning government sales manual at least three strategies to supercharge your business and some specific answers to to your biggest challenges that are out there. Now, normally these sessions run about $495, but for a limited time for our podcast listeners only, you can schedule the session at no cost to you. So that's zero cost to schedule a session with me. Simply visit rsmfederal.com forward slash breakthrough coaching. And you'll be able to fill out an application. So scroll all the way to the bottom of that page. Fill out an application that will come directly to me. Then I'll reach out to you. We'll get our, our session scheduled. And we'll walk through some of the challenges that you're having. Whether it's you know, how to grow the business, your goal setting, um, specific challenges you're having in government. This doesn't have to be just about specific to growing any business. But you're going to walk away from the session not only understanding how to approach the government from a better perspective. But you're going to walk away with a lot of confidence on what you need to do, what next steps you need to take to supercharge your government business so you can take the next several months, the next several years to a whole new level. So again, visit us at rsmfederal.com forward slash coaching. You can uh, get an overview of what Breakthrough Coaching is all about, scroll all the way to the bottom, fill out the application, that'll come to me, and then I'll schedule your session for you. And last but not least, let me take a moment here. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. We really appreciate your support. Remember, you can find every episode on iTunes. Just look for Game Changers for Government Contractors and subscribe to the feed to make sure you get every episode. And be sure to tune in next time for lessons from our experts on how you can win more government contracts. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers.